Well, good morning and welcome to Sojourn. My name is Justin, one of the pastors here, and uh, it's good to, uh, to be with you this morning. As Andrew said earlier, uh, if this is your first time here, we are thankful and glad that God has brought you to be with us this morning. I hope uh, even during the passing of the peace that you got to say hello and meet somebody new. Uh, we want this to be a, a community, a family, uh, where you can get plugged in, where you can find yourself being a part of, uh, no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey. We know everybody's on a spiritual journey, whether you're seeking to follow Christ or you're questioning whether God even exists. Uh, we want this to be a, a church community, a family where you can, can, can just hang out with us and, and get to know other people here to help you to continue on in your spiritual journey. We're going to be preaching out of the scriptures as we do every week here at Sojourn. Uh, and so if you need a Bible this morning, would you just raise your hand? We'll have a couple of folks uh, bring Bibles around to you. Love for you to have God's Word in your hand. We believe this is God's Word uh, to us, uh, that it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, and that it's li- uh, living and active. And so if you don't actually own a copy of the Bible, we'd love for you to take that home with you as well, uh, just so that you can have God's Word in your hands uh, throughout the week, not just here on Sunday mornings. Uh, But as we begin our time this morning, before we just kind of open up to the scriptures, uh, let's just go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless this time. So would you pray with me? Father, we come before you this morning acknowledging your goodness, your kindness, your grace towards us, uh, people who are imperfect, uh, people who are struggling, people who are having a great day, a great week. We're just all over the place, but we give you thanks for your grace that we were able to get up out of the bed today. Uh, that we were able to be here this morning, that we were able to experience uh, being around other people today. It's just a gift for us uh, to be here. And so we praise you and thank you for that. And Lord, now as we open up your word, we just pray that you would, you would meet us in this moment. As you've prepared our hearts, maybe primed the pump a bit this morning through singing and through uh, the rest of our liturgy this morning, I pray that you would meet us in this moment, that as we open up your word, that you'd help us to set aside distractions, set aside other things going on in our lives, just to, to hear from you today. And we believe your word is alive and active. We believe that your Holy Spirit inspired it. We believe your Holy Spirit uses it to transform us. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do that work today. That, that because we're sitting here and listening to your word preached, that you would transform our lives today. And so we just plead for you to do that. I pray that I would get out of the way. This would have nothing to do with me. This had nothing to do with our church. But what would be clear this morning is that you are a good and great and gracious God and that you love us and care for us. And so Lord, we pray that you would do a mighty work today uh, for your glory and for our good. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. In, uh, in 1954, uh, one of the most significant things uh, happened, occurred in the history of our country. Uh, my parents aren't here this morning. They were born that year, but that's not what I'm talking about. Um, but uh, something really significant happened in the history of our church in 1954. The U.S. Supreme Court handed down a landmark decision in the case Brown versus the Board of Education. And so if you know anything about history, if you're a history person, or maybe you remember studying this in school, this was a significant case in the life of our country. Because up to that point in time, in the history of America, it was uh, okay for local school districts within the U.S., they were allowed by law to segregate schools based off of ethnicity, based off race. They could just completely do that. It was okay by law. The government said, it's fine for you to do that. But when this case came before the Supreme Court, Brown versus the Board of Education, the Supreme Court made a ruling declaring that to be unconstitutional under our 14th Amendment. And so now it was not okay for school systems to segregate schools. 
And this decision paved the way for integration, both in the public school, but also just throughout, uh, throughout other areas within our country as well. And it was really a turning point in American history. It was the beginning of a new chapter, a new chapter that I would argue is still far from being complete in our country. But it was the beginning of something, something that changed, a, a, a trial that came to before the, the highest court in the land that led to change in our country, the beginnings of it at least. Now, we're in a sermon series uh, called Freedom. We've been in this series for the last couple of weeks, and we're going to spend about five weeks walking through this series. And what we're trying to do in the midst of this is understand the reality of the freedom that you either already have, if you know Christ, if you're in Christ, you already have this freedom, or the freedom that's offered to you that comes in and through Jesus. And so today, in our third Sunday in this series, we're going to take a slight but related tangent in talking about freedom. Because what we're going to talk about today is not so much spiritual freedom, though we'll, we'll hit on that a bit through this text, through the, the text that we're going to look at this morning. But the, really the application, what I want us to focus on as we'll see in this text, is that our freedom that we have in Christ compels us to bring about freedom for those who are experiencing injustice and actual slavery. And so we're going to talk about what that looks like for us as a church, as God's people. We're going to be looking at a text in the Old Testament in uh, the book of Micah, Micah chapter 6. And and Micah is a short book. It's towards the end of your Old Testament in a section of your Bible that's often referred to as the Minor Prophets. And so this text, particularly one verse, it's kind of become a popular verse within the church in America, uh, particularly among younger generations of people. Uh, verse 8 in Micah chapter 6. And, and so maybe you're familiar with this text, at least that verse. And for a lot of us, though, uh, we probably, if we're honest, and it's okay, we can be honest here, we haven't spent a whole lot of time in the book of Micah. We may not be familiar with it. You might be still thumbing through trying to find it this morning, and that's totally fine. Use your table of contents. It's what it's there for. Um, but what we're going to do, I hope, as we open up to this is really just listen to God's word to us this morning. Whether we're familiar with this or not, that, that God would do in us this morning what he's seeking to do through Micah to the people of Israel, his original audience. And that's just to awaken us, to open up our eyes, to, to help us to, to lift our gaze, to look around us. And that he would a- awaken us to, to do and be the people that he's called us to. See, what we see in this text is a trial an actual kind of legal proceeding, not a trial in, in this midst of a, a difficulty in your life, but a, a legal proceeding. And just like Brown versus the Board of Education, it's a trial that leads to change, that calls God, God's people to change. So we need to understand something this morning. You may be thinking, well, okay, Old Testament, he's talking to the people of Israel, uh, but he's talking to God's people. This is God communicating through this messenger to his people. And, and something we need to understand this morning is that God's people have become the church. So God's people have always existed. We could go back to when God created Adam and Eve, and that was the beginning of the formation of God's people. And so God's people have always existed, but throughout time have, have changed. And, and now we say, well, God's people have become the church. And so what that means for us this morning is even though this was written so long ago to a particular group of people, it was written to God's people. And if you find yourself as a part of God's people this morning, then this is for you and for me as well. And so we need to listen to God's word this morning and and I pray, as I prayed earlier, just the active nature of God's word would not only engage our minds, my goal, our hope this morning is not that you would learn something new in a a, uh, a theological sense or just an academic sense, but you would actually see God's word penetrate your heart. And as it impacts your heart, that it would lead to change in your life. 
And so let's jump into the text this morning and may God bless the preaching of his word. If you haven't found Micah chapter 6, go to your table of contents and find it. It's in between the book of Jonah and Nahum. It's a short little book, uh, but we're going to be in chapter 6 this morning. And we're going to read verses 1 through 8 and then walk through this text to help us to understand uh, God's word to us. So hear the word of the Lord this morning. Starting in verse 1. Hear what the Lord says. Arise. Plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. What we need to see here is that God's people have rebelled against God and his ways. They've sought to go their own way, really kind of living a double life. They're pursuing God, or at least giving lip service to God, but at the very same time, they're, they're chasing after false gods. And at this time, the people of Israel are finding themselves kind of intermixed with just the culture that they're in, and this particular culture is worshiping false gods that manifest themselves in the forms of actual statues or temples or sacrifices. And so they, they, they're still acknowledging the fact that they believe in the one true God, but they're kind of chasing after these other gods as well. And so God sends the prophet Micah. And a prophet is really just a messenger from God. Someone who's speaking on behalf of God to his people with a particular message for his people to listen to. And Micah's message throughout the book of Micah is a message of judgment and rebuke. But it's not just that. It's also a message of hope. The message from Micah calls out what is wrong and false among God's people But it also seeks to remind God's people of who he is. To remind God's people of what he has done and what he will do. That he is a gracious and rescuing and restoring God. Now again, this may seem like a little bit of an odd place for us to go this morning. Uh, As people in Fairfax, there's not many places in Fairfax for us to go uh, to worship a statue of a false god. Uh, there are a few, but there's not very many of those places that we could go here in Fairfax. So we think, well, what, what, what's this relevant, or how's this relevant to me here in Fairfax? But, but what we need to understand, though, is that every culture worships something. Every single culture worships something. It's just a matter of what that something happens to be. See, worship is about giving worth to something. It's about how, what we value most, what we believe to be most important, what we'll follow, what we'll esteem and, and lift up in our lives and, and seek to follow after and kind of orient our lives around. And so what that means for you and for me is that anything and anyone can be an object of worship for us. 
And so because we find ourselves in a culture, our culture worships things. And so it's not a matter of, well, yes, we may not be going to a temple to bow down to a statue, but because we find ourselves in the culture we're in, we also are tempted to live double lives of worship. What we also need to understand about worship, though, is worship isn't kind of separate in our lives. Worship always leads to action in your life. It always leads to action. Because what you follow and what you value most and what you give worth to will dictate the direction and trajectory of your lives. You orient your life around what you worship. What what, will influence what you do for work and and what you do with your money and your resources. It'll, It'll influence what you do with your free time and the kind of relationships that you have or the kind of relationships that you'll pursue. And so Micah's speaking to Israel in this original context, but this is God's word, uh, and so he's speaking to you and to me this morning as well. And the book of Micah is set up like a trial. It's essentially a lawsuit against, from God against his people. He's bringing these charges against his people, God being the plaintiff and the people, and the kind of collective defendant. And so what we see here in Micah chapter 6 is we're zooming in here a little bit and and what Micah is focusing on, what God is speaking at this moment is directly connected to the people's worship and the lifestyle that flows from that. And so God's seeking to address that. So here's kind of a key overarching statement for this text. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Again, a key overarching statement is this. Faithfulness to God does not come through religious ritual. Faithfulness to God does not come from religious ritual, but is an expression of love that results in action. Let me say that again. Faithfulness to God does not come through religious ritual, but is an expression of love that results or leads to action. We have four points in our sermon today, and so you can jot these down as well. We'll walk through them. The first one is this. What we're going to see in this text is an indictment against his people. Our second point is a gracious reminder to his people. Our third point, a foolish response from his people. And finally, our fourth point, a movement of his people. So let's walk through each of these points. Our first point, an indictment against his people. We see this in verses 1 through 3. Micah is setting up a trial scene. And and really, this is an illustration, right? God's using this to help communicate something to his people, to kind of get their attention, to wake them up a little bit. God's not having to actually bring trial, bring charges against his people as if he has to plead his case, hoping it turns out well for him. I mean, this is the sovereign Lord of all creation. Psalm 115 says, the Lord is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. And so God is right and just in doing everything that he does, but he's seeking to help his people in this. And so if this, if this kind of rubs you the wrong way, thinking like, man, God, this doesn't seem very loving that God would bring these charges against his people, I think what we actually need to see is that God could completely obliterate his people because of their abject disobedience. They don't give a rip about God right now. They're just using their mouths to praise him, but the rest of their life isn't following suit And so God would be justified in not giving anything to these people. And so the fact that he's coming to them, that he's sending this prophet to them to communicate and call them to repentance, to call them to live this life with him and to walk with him is actually the most gracious and kind and loving thing that he could do to them and for them. And so Micah sets the scene. It's time for the case of the God of all creation versus his rebellious people to begin And of course, there have to be people to witness this trial, to essentially uh, adjudicate this, uh, basically a jury to stand and listen to this testimony. 
And so who does Micah call? Who does God call Micah to call to play this role? He says the hills and the mountains. Now, if you've been around Virginia for very long, maybe you grew up here or you've recently relocated to here. Um, in Virginia, the highest peak in our whole state is just over 5,700 feet. Just over 5,700 feet. There's a few peaks that are right around that mark, but that's the highest point in Virginia. A few years ago, I went out to Aspen, Colorado with a friend of mine in October. A great time of year to go. The trees are changing color. Aspen trees uh, are really beautiful uh, when they change. And so we, we, we go out there in October, and in, in Colorado alone, there are 53 what are called 14ers. Uh, 14ers are any peaks over 14,000 feet. In the whole state of Colorado, just in Colorado, there's, are, there's 53 of those. So Virginia has hills. Colorado has mountains, right? So if you want to go uh, see some mountains, go out west to the Rockies. Well, my friend and I, we drove around uh, a little bit, and we went to two of the most beautiful 14ers in Colorado, the Maroon Bells. And these are two peaks that are right next to each other, and they kind of overlook a, a maroon lake. And so the reflection of these mountains kind of uh, paints itself over this still lake. And it's just an amazing sight to see these 14,000-foot peaks just kind of rising up out of the ground. So picture here that we're sit- hanging out by Maroon Lake, and we're going to hold a court case. We're going to have a trial. We're, we're just going to, let's bring everybody together. Let's do this. You're thinking, why is he calling the hills and the mountains to be the witnesses to this trial? Well, the reason he's doing this is because he's essentially indicting the people that these silent observers of God's creation are over his people watching them. And so they know everything that his people have done. They know everything that we've done. He's essentially calling the cosmos to be witnesses uh, for and against his people as he gives this indictment. And it's really a testimony to the greatness of God and the feebleness of his people, the finite nature of his people. Is this to say, I don't need to call anybody else. I'm the God of all creation. So I'm going to call the mountains to be witnesses to you, my people, who are also my creation but have strayed away from me. So what's the indictment? It's really the gist of the whole book of Micah, and we get a hint of it here in verse 3. Look at verse 3 again. In verse 3, God says, this is kind of God's testimony. In your Bible, it's in quotes. It says, Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. God's saying, have I done something negative towards you? Have I done something to weary you, to to, to bring kind of a burdensome aspect to our relationship? See, I think the people at this point are thinking God has been unkind. He's been ungracious, unloving, uncaring towards them. To them, they see God as being burdensome and a bore towards them. But these other gods, they think, man, these other gods, I mean, they're great. Look look at all that they'll let us do. Look at all that they will promise to us. See, God's covenant people have sought out these other gods and other means of worshiping the one true God. And so this indictment is twofold. It's essentially saying you've chased after false religiosity and you've forgotten who I am. In the mundaneness of life and the distractions of culture, they find themselves having forgotten who God is and what he's done and what he actually calls them to, to walk with him in covenant relationship in the cool of the day. But God doesn't smite them in this moment. God doesn't crush them. He doesn't cause those mountains that are standing around them to fall on them in judgment on them to crash down. No, he doesn't smite them. He graciously reminds them, which leads to our second point, a gracious reminder to his people. We see this in verses four and five. God openly asks his people, has he done something to exacerbate them? 
But what he does now is he states what he has actually done and what he's actually like. And he gives four examples, really illustrations to, to show and paint the picture and remind his people of his character. The first one is about Egypt. He says, I, I rescued you and redeemed you out of slavery. The people of God had been enslaved in Egypt for over 400 years. They're literally slaves, bound, shackled uh, to follow a master that they didn't choose to follow. And God rescued them out of that. He redeemed them out of that. He set them free. In his second example, he says, I set Moses and Aaron and Miriam uh, before you. He, He graciously gave them people to lead them. So they weren't just out there wandering on their own. He, he gave them these leaders to lead them and care for them. And our third example he gives, he talks about Balak and Balaam. This is out of the book of Numbers. Balak essentially wanted to curse God's people. He wanted Balaam to come and speak a curse over them. And so what we see here is that even when someone wanted to curse you, even when they wanted evil spoken over you, when they wanted evil to come about in your life, God doesn't seek to, to fulfill that. He wants to bless them instead of curse them. Because he changes the message that Balaam's going to speak. It's a great story. You should go read it in the book of Numbers. Our fourth example, he has this example of Shittim and Gilgal. It's this place where they rebelled against God. They chased after other gods again. And they broke this covenant relationship. Yet God renewed it and he restored it with them at Gilgal right before they crossed over the Jordan River into the land that God had promised them. Once again, God parted the waters for the people and they passed through the waters into this place. This is who God is. This is what God has done for His people. And they don't deserve it. They were running away from Him, and yet He came after them. See, something key we need to understand about God is this. The one true God is a God who saves and rescues those who cannot save and rescue themselves. This picture that God is displaying for us, that he's reminding us of, is he's a God who saves and rescues those who cannot save and rescue themselves. He's not burdensome, but he's also a God that we can't put in a box. He, he is the transcendent Lord of all creation. He's high and lifted up, yet at the very same time, he's a God who dwells with the lowly and contrite in spirit and brings revival and brings life and brings freedom. That's who this God is. See, God's people are guilty. They're guilty as charged, guilty of walking away from him, guilty of giving lip service to him. But he doesn't smite them. He gives them this gracious reminder. And he says to them in verse 5, if you look at the beginning of verse 5 and the end of verse 5, he says, remember that you may know. Remember that you may know. Man, we so easily forget, don't we? I mean, we forget little things in life. The other day, or yesterday, I was trying to find the key to our shed to go get uh, my son Owen's bicycle out of there, and I couldn't find the key. I couldn't remember where I put it. Looking all over the house, thankfully I knew where my spare key was, but I didn't know where the original key was. And I mean, we do that all the time. We forget things all the time. We forget an appointment we have or a meeting or to respond to someone's email or whatever. But something else we also forget just in the regular everyday aspects of our life is we forget who God is. We forget who he really is and what he's actually done for us. And so we start to give lip service to God or create different mechanisms for us to follow him. And we just completely forget the unfathomable rescuing grace of God. And we see that the people do this exact thing, even in the midst of this trial, as Micah gives the people's response. It's our third point, a foolish response from his people in verses 6 and 7. See, what's going on here in verses 6 and 7 is that the people have heard what God said, but they haven't really listened to it. If you have little kids, you know what I'm talking about. 
you can speak to your kids and they can be kind of paying attention to you, but they're not really listening, right? So I, I'll ask my boys sometimes to look me in the eye. I want you to look in my eyes. And I'll speak to them. I say, Do, are you listening? Yes. What did I just say? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> right? We do that all the time with God. We, we, we can hear his words, but we're not really listening to what he's saying. We're not really heeding what he's saying. So God has just told them that he's full of grace. God has just reminded them that he is a rescuer and a restorer, and it has absolutely nothing to do with them and anything that they can do to earn that. But what do they do? When we look at their response, we see they transform this covenant relationship with God into a contract. They basically say, well, okay, God, great, uh, thanks for that. Hey, so what can I do to earn your favor? What price can I pay to get something from you? And so they go through this list of things. What do I need to do to bring something? Is it burnt offerings, a thousand rams, ten thousands of rivers of oil? I know, I know, I'll give you my firstborn uh, for my transgression and my sin. That that, they really believe that that's what God wants. That's what he cares about most. And they're totally missing the point of the character of who God is. And when we wrap our minds around who God is, how that impacts the way that we relate to him and to other people. They have a wrong view of God. See, the people's response misses the whole point of who God is and what he's done. It's as if they're saying, yes, God, you do demand too much from me, and I don't actually want to change. I want you to change. I want to be able to relate to you differently. And just like the Pharisees in Jesus' day, the religious elite leaders of his day, they wanted to essentially dress up their actual disobedience with religious rhetoric and, and, and these kind of false deeds. Instead of actually walking in relationship with their loving, gracious, merciful, and kind God with him and in his ways and what he cares most about. And again, you and I can do the same thing. Whether we believe or struggle with the reality that I still have to earn something from God or that if I do good things, God will hook me up. Or maybe we just completely run away from him entirely, just rejecting him outright, forgetting or not understanding who he actually is and what he actually cares about. We can start to believe in the middle of the week that what God cares about is box checking. You better shape up or ship out. He's going to be angry with you. And so we start to paint this different picture of God and we we paint a different picture of God. We put him in a box. We want to create a God we can manage. I think that's what the people are doing here. They're creating a God they can manage, but it's a God that doesn't exist. He's not real. So God's telling who the real God is. So if that's you this morning, let me just reiterate something to you. Remember so that you may know. Remember so that you may know that what God has been doing since the beginning, that he's a pursuing, a rescuing, a redeeming God, and he's setting enslaved and undeserving people free to walk with him in relationship. His plans and his purposes for his people is to overcome your rebellion and my rebellion and the death that comes with it. And he has done that completely and entirely And it has manifested itself ultimately in his son, Jesus Christ. See, when we look back to the reminders that God gives in verses 4 through 5, we see Christ ultimately fulfills all those things. It's Jesus who purchased our freedom from sin and death. You and I were enslaved to our sin, shackled to our sin, unable to let ourselves free. Yet Jesus went to the cross paying your debt, paying your penalty so that he could set you free from slavery. Jesus is our leader Just like Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, Jesus is our shepherd, our king, the one we follow. He doesn't leave us to ourselves. He's the shepherd and overseer of our souls. 
Jesus gives blessing even when others only want evil for us. And when you and I rebel and walk away and chase after other false gods in our culture, Jesus is faithful to bring us back and restore us once again. And he uses gifts of grace like gathering with the church and baptism and communion to rehearse those gospel truths, those good truths in our lives. Jesus is the literal embodiment of our redeeming and rescuing God who rescues and redeems people not because they deserve it, because no one does. No one's worthy of this kind of love and grace, but he does it for those who are the worst offenders and the most enslaved to sin. Remember that you may know, Micah says, because when we remember who our God is, our hearts are so overwhelmed in worship, we can't help but fall on our knees or lift our hands or find our hearts just so warm to the fact that God has saved us, he's rescued us, He set us free, that it impacts our lives. And we start to understand his magnificent grace and our call, not as a burden placed on us that's unbearable, but a burden that's light and easy and able to be, to be born on our back, to walk with him. It's light and easy, Jesus says. It's a privilege and a joy to follow him in love and in good works. Which leads to our last point, a movement of his people. In verse 8, see, we don't earn anything from God We don't do things in order to get God to do things for us. And so he asks the people, he tells the people in verse 8, he says, He has told you, O man, what is good. You already know the answer. That's why we need to gather together regularly as the church because you and I so often forget this. We forget the answer. We need to be reminded of it over and over again, just like God's people always have had to be reminded of it. You know what is good. You know the good ways and the good commands, the ancient ways of walking with your God in relationship. You know what is required. What's required of God is not religious duty, but delight in the glory and grace of God that leads to a transformed life. Worship that leads to action, that creates movement in you. What is required? What does God care about? He cares about living a life that's born out of faith, that's born out of the rescue and redemption and freedom that has already taken place in your life. See, God's people aren't intended to live life like life life is a grab bag. Like, I'm just going to get mine. I want to get what I can. I'm going to grab and I'm going to take, and I'm not going to pay any attention to anybody else around me. So I think sometimes we can approach our relationship with God like we approach Walmart on Black Friday. Right? We're at the door, 5 a.m., those doors open. We're going in. I don't care who's around me. If you're too close to me, you're getting an elbow, right? Because I got to have that, that DVD, that Blu-ray. It's $3 off. Got to go grab it. You know, we just, we live life that way in relationship to God. Like, I'm going to grab whatever I can from God. I don't give a rip about anybody else. I just want God to bless me. I want him to hook me up. But no, see, that's not who we are. God's people are people who live in a broken world as redeemed people. And as redeemed people, we can bring redemption to a broken people all around us. Our worship overflows in our life. It creates movement in our life. See, the key truth we stated earlier, that God is a God who saves and rescues those who cannot save and rescue themselves, isn't just to comfort us. It's amazing news. But it doesn't just stop with comforting us. It has implications for us as people who were formerly enslaved but have now been set free have now been rescued. See, as God's people being restored in the image of God, we can take up those causes also. In the case of the people of Israel, they had done just the opposite. They sought to only get and take, but they weren't looking out for those around them. 
those around them in society who were just like them, oppressed, enslaved, weak, wronged. They weren't paying attention to anybody else but themselves. But see, that's exactly what God calls his people to do. What is required? Not religious duty, but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. See, when you and I recognize who God is, when we recognize what he's done for us in our hearts through Christ, it overwhelms us in worship. And when our hearts are moved to deep worship of our gracious God, it affects our lives and our actions. What we worship shapes how we live. And so what does God mean by each of these things? Let's look through them quickly. He says, do justice. This means to do the right thing towards other people. As one pastor says, he isn't saying to talk about justice. He isn't saying to get other people to act justly. He's calling you to do the just thing yourself. So the implication for God's people is that we find ourselves in a broken world that's full of injustice. Sometimes we hear about that injustice on the news, but many times we don't because so much injustice in our world goes on in the shadows and in the darkness. But wherever there is injustice, God's covenant people, his once enslaved people, now rescued people, seek to bring about and do justice, to bring renewal, kingdom renewal, kingdom restoration, kingdom realities. So this means as God's people, when we find ourselves in a socially superior situation, we should use the freedom that we have to step in and step up to deliver the weaker and wronged party. Because God has set us free. He's blessed us with that. So we are called to do justice. He also calls us to love kindness. This is interesting here because in different translations of your Bible, if you have a different English uh, Bible than the ESV, the one that we're preaching out of, it may say something like love mercy. And the reason for that is it's a little bit difficult to translate here. The word here, the Hebrew word is chesed. And what that means is one commentator defined in, in just a beautiful way is it's a love that will not let me go. A love that will not let me go. So it's faithful love. It's loyal love. It's steadfast love. It's enduring love. This is the kind of love that God has towards you. When you were unlovable, God loved you. When you were enslaved, God broke your bonds. When you were alone in this world, God came to you to dwell among you. When you were in darkness, God showed his redeeming light into your life and brought you out. It's the kind of love that sought you at your worst, but loves you to your depths. A love that cannot be overcome, it can't be quenched, it can't be extinguished, and it'll never go away. It's the love that you and I have received in and through Christ, that God's made known to us in and through Christ. It's the kind of love that God, show, that God calls us to show as well. So do justice, love kindness, and lastly, walk humbly with your God. Maybe a better translation of this would be to walk carefully with your God or live in a relationship with your God, following Him in all of His ways as the Lord and King and ruler of your life. Believing, believing that He is actually good and that His ways are good. Some people have said that Micah 6, 8 really summarizes all of the law and the prophets. If we want to know what all of the law and the prophets are about, we could go to Micah 6, 8 and say this really summarizes this. And I think Jesus would agree. Because in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is asked this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus is saying, what does God require but to love God and love others? Love God and love others. That's what Micah 6.8 is getting at. That's what God requires of you. Not to earn favor with him, not to get something from him, but because he sets you free, because your heart's been so overwhelmed by worship that this is the kind of life that flows from that. To love God and love others. Our gracious salvation leads to transformation, which leads to obedience. And in this case, simply and succinctly, to love God and love others because he first loved us. See, Sojourn, we need to understand that God's grace puts his people on the move. God's grace puts his people on the move. When you've, been ex- when you've experienced this kind of grace, when you've experienced this kind of freedom, you can't sit still. You can't just hang out. You can't just kind of sit and soak. It compels you to action. It compels you to move. And Sojourn, there are so many opportunities for you and I to do justice and to love others with a love that won't let go and to walk humbly and in step with our King and Creator. This past week, even in our country, we've seen brokenness. It's been a challenging week in our country again with two more shootings that we've seen publicized. And it's difficult. And regardless of the circumstances, regardless of what you think about all those different things, what's true is that there's tension in our country. What's true is that there's brokenness in our country, both systemic and relationally. What's true is that there's still injustice that exists in our country. And so as God's people, we can and should step up and step into that. Not hang out on the sidelines, not just tweet about it, but actually do something. And we can start by listening and learning and seeking to bring about renewal and change and healing, regardless of your skin color, regardless of your background. Because see, I think the reality for all of us, especially when things are a bit removed from us, is just to ignore it. We don't pay much attention to it. We kind of come numb and inoculated to it. There's another thing. There's another bad thing that's happening. And it becomes just white noise, old news to us. And we can become so engrossed in our own lives that we actually slip back into and actually believe that the world revolves around us. Forgetting the fact that we have 7.4 billion neighbors. Neighbors who need our love and need the love of God in their lives. And so we have to resist the temptation to look the other way, to not care, to just to go about our own religious activities, seeking to relate to God in a way that he's not calling us to relate to him, ignoring the fact that what he's calling us to do is to live a life that overflows from our worship and movement, to care about the things that are close to his heart, the things that break his heart. We can take our Bibles and flip through the pages of Scripture and see over and over and over again that the God of the Bible is the God of the marginalized. He's the God of the disenfranchised. He's the God of the brokenhearted. He's the God of the oppressed and the orphan. He's the God of the widow and the immigrant. He's the God of the prisoner. He's the God of the captive. And so when we look at other people, we see that those are the people that God cares about. We don't look at people like a bag of Skittles, wondering if one of them's poisoned. We welcome them into our lives and into our homes, risking in relationship because we love with a love that is out of this world because of the love that God has given to us. See, God calls his people to care for the least of these and to bring about justice, not because people can pay for it, not because they can figure it out or obtain it on their own, but exactly because they can't. That's the role he's called you to as his his people. 
because that's where Israel was. They didn't deserve it, and you didn't deserve it either, but yet God gave it freely to you at the cost of his son. We have a God who rescues and redeems and saves those who cannot save and rescue and redeem themselves, and he is worthy of our worship and the life that flows from that. One of the greatest injustices in our world today is that of slavery, actual slavery. There are more slaves in our world today than at any point in history. Any point in history. That's crazy to wrap your mind around that. There are more people enslaved today than at any point in our history. And we need to hear this. Modern day slavery is a gospel issue. It's an issue for God's people to take up and run with because of passages like Matthew chapter 6. And just like William Wilberforce, a follower of Christ, compelled by the gospel of grace that he had experienced, sought to fight against and end the African trade, slave trade in the UK, we too as followers of Christ, out of, us, out of our overflow, out of the reality of our lives and the grace and rescue that we've experienced, should also take that up and seek to end that in our world. Today's what's called Freedom Sunday. There's an organization called the International Justice Mission, or IJM. And today, they have called on churches all across our country, just like ours, to engage in the fight against injustice and slavery. So we need to understand, we need to open our eyes and recognize the fact that when God calls us to live this kind of life, to do justice, there's lots of opportunities for it. To love people with love people the love that can't let go, that won't let go, there's lots of opportunities for it. There are men and women trafficked every day in and out of our country for sex or for labor. Northern Virginia, I just found this out this week. This is mind-blowing to us, or to me. I think it should be mind-blowing to all of us. Northern Virginia has become one of the top 10 teen trafficking areas in our nation. One of the top 10 in all of the United States. Northern Virginia is one of the top 10 teen, teenagers. 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds. 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds that are enslaved, that are around you in Fairfax. That's crazy. But see, this issue of slavery and trafficking isn't just a local issue, it's a global issue. And so what I want to do right now is I just want to show you a, a short video this morning just to open your eyes to the reality of so many people, image bearers of God, just like you and just like me, kids, just like the kids that are down the hall, I want you to watch this video, just see the reality that many of these people are going through. So put down your pen or your phone just for a minute and watch and listen to Kumar's story. And then I'll come back up and we'll wrap up. 45 million people still in slavery. 45 million image bearers of God. 45 million people waiting to be rescued who are trapped, who are oppressed, who are abused. 45 million people that need God's people. God's people to do justice, to love them with a love that doesn't let go, and who are seeking to walk and live humbly with their God. So my question to you this morning, is that you? Are you that person? I hope we're that people. And there's lots of ways you can get involved you can begin by praying that God would do a work to end global slavery, local and globally. You can speak up and speak out to take something that's been done in the shadows and in darkness for so long and let people know about it. Write your congressman or congresswoman. 
you can go, you can get involved in organizations like IJM and other organizations that are seeking to do this kind of work. And you can give to resource this fight against slavery and injustice. When it comes to local efforts, you can get involved with organizations like the Northern Virginia Human Trafficking Initiative, an organization here in Northern Virginia that's seeking to bring awareness and change in the issues of human trafficking and slavery. They're actually having a big event on November the 18th that you can attend to find out more. And so if you want to learn more about that, you can go to their website, novahti.com or N-O-V-A-H-T-I.com. But maybe today what grabbed your attention is the work that IJM's doing and, and hearing what they're doing and the, the love of the Father that compels them to go and to search out those who are trapped. And I'm excited this morning is to point you towards Jill Bushery. Jill uh, is a member of Sojourn and actually works for IJM. IJM's headquarters are here in the D.C. area. And Jill's going to be at a table in the back today, and she'd love to talk with you, uh, answer any questions about what IJM's doing, and specifically help you get connected to the work that they're involved in. Um, one of the biggest ways that you can partner with them is by, coming, by becoming what's called a freedom partner. And for $24 a month, you can support IJM and what they're doing to see slaves set free, see people set free. And so you can talk to Jill about that. You can go online on their website as well just to see how can I give $24 a month. $24 a month. I mean, some of you spend twice as much of that on coffee every month. What would it look like for you just to sacrifice a little of that above and beyond what you're giving already? Just to say, man, I want to help set slaves free to do justice and to love people with that kind of love. And the crazy thing is if you sign up to do that before the end of the month, your gift will actually be doubled uh, this whole next year through a private donor. Um, and so, man, what, if, what would it look like for us, church, to engage in that way? And so, let me just remind you as we, as we wrap up to weep with those who weep. We, we've mentioned this before because this has been a challenging year and just in our countries. We've seen lots of difficult things. And let me just call you to remind you to weep with those who weep, even when you don't understand why it is that they're weeping. Don't wait to figure that out. But let me encourage you not just to weep with those who weep, but to use your hands to actually wipe their tears off their face to use your hands to help set their hands that are in bondage free and to engage with those around you. Listen, engage, bring kingdom renewal through your words and your actions and your involvement both locally and globally. In Micah chapter 6, God brought a trial against his people that led to change. So what does God require? What does he care about? What is the good way? It isn't religion. Jesus paid it all for you to set you free. And now he calls you as a result of your freedom, in your freedom, to do justice, to love steadfastly, and to walk humbly with your God who pursued you when you were lost and alone and who saved and set you free. So sojourn, let's pursue those who are now lost and alone, and in the name of Jesus, give them freedom too. We're going to come to the communion table now. And as we come to the table this morning, we're reminded of the price paid for our spiritual freedom. As we eat the bread, we remember that Jesus is the bread of life and that his body was broken for us. And as we drink the cup, we're reminded that Jesus shed his blood for us, that at a great cost, our sin deserved our own death, but Jesus shed his blood to pay that cost for us, to pay our debts, to set us free. And so if you're in Christ this morning, you are the redeemed people of God, a family brought together in and through Christ once strangers, aliens, without hope, but God, being rich in mercy, made a way for you through Christ to bring you into his family as his son and as his daughter. 
to bring us together as a family here in Fairfax. And so as you eat and drink this morning, may it compel you to worship. And as you worship, may it compel you to live a life out of the overflow of that, living out the implications of the gospel both locally and globally for the glory of God and the good of others. So come to the table this morning and celebrate the freedom that you have in Christ. And let me just say, if you're not a follower of Christ this morning, we would just ask you not to come take communion. And the reason for that is because this doesn't do anything for you. Uh, We want you to take Christ If you're still enslaved in sin yourself, you've never trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, we want to call you to that today, to cry out to God and ask Him to save you, to rescue you today. So you can just hang out in your seat and pray and and talk to God about that and talk to someone else here at this church. That's why we're here. We want you to know Jesus. And then we want to walk with you in that. So talk to someone so then maybe next week you can come forward and celebrate the freedom you have in Christ. But those of you that will come forward, you can come to the front or to the back Tear off a piece of bread and take a small cup to drink. And what Jesus has done for you will be spoken over you this morning. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the time we've had to worship you today, to worship you through song, to worship you through the reading of your word, and to worship you now through the preaching of your word. And Father, we thank you for freedom. We thank you for rescue. That when we were lost and alone, you sought us out, you came for us to bring us into your fold once again. And so, Father, I just pray that you'd overwhelm our hearts this morning, overwhelm our hearts in worship, and may that lead to lives of action. Put us on the move, God. Don't let us sit here and not be active. Put us on the move to love you and to love others. Mobilize us to do justice, to love with a love that won't let go, and to walk humbly with you, our glorious God. We praise you for your grace. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.